If you're enjoying getting better acquainted with me and with my guests, maybe you'd like to help other people find out about the show. There's a few easy ways to do that. You can go on iTunes if you've got five minutes and leave a review saying what you think of it. That helps it get higher rankings on iTunes and stuff like that. What the show really needs is word of mouth. And in this internet age, that means liking the show's page on Facebook or retweeting it or sharing the link to all of your Facebook friends or Twitter followers, doing whatever you need to do in whatever social networking site you use. And if you don't use a social networking site, well, hey, you can just tell your friends or email your friends and tell them about what's going on. I love representing people. I just love that. I, I like helping people with their problems and to get a resolution for them. Being a lawyer is a great way to do that. And But you're also kind of fighting for something better. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Today we are getting better acquainted with Richard. Hello, Richard. Hello, Dave. We've uh, we've already had one start. It was a false start, so that's why we, <laughs> sound, we sound a bit prepared there. When did you meet me? Well, I seem to remember. I think it was 2001. I think it was the first year of university, either in the Easter time or the summer time. And Jenny was working at Thomas's in York. Oh, that's right, yeah. And... Um, you were sat at a table while Jenny was rather harassed with, yeah. <laughs> with doing waitressing, and I think I, I came in and had a had a chat with you, as far as I remember. To make that clear, we went to sort of different universities. Although I nearly went to Lancaster, Dave. Actually. Oh, did you? Yeah. And you are from York. You grew up with Jen. Yes. And that's that's how I met you through Jen. Exactly. What do you do now? What do I do? Yeah. Uh, well. Um, I suppose by day I'm an employment lawyer at a trade union firm called Russell Jones and Walker in Chancery Lane, London. And then by night I'm sort of a Liberal Democrat activist, I suppose, <laughs> you might call them. Uh, do I dare say that in this climate? <laughs> well, I, I think I think you dare, and I, I think you know you be, you believe you believe in it. So it's, it's yes, I do. It's something that you get a lot of grief for, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's worth it because I think we're doing some decent stuff in government and I think as a party we have good values and a good idea of the kind of country we're trying to create but of course sadly that has to be in partnership with another party um, within a coalition framework but what I say is it's better being in government rather than just constantly shouting from the sideline. I think there's something to be said for that, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to get into the Liberal Democrat thing later, but I think we'll warm up to that. <laughs> um, so you're a employment lawyer. Yes. What does an employment lawyer do? Basically, any employee has certain rights. You have the right not to be discriminated against. You have the right not to be unfairly dismissed. You know, you we all sign up to employment contracts, all that kind of thing. And basically, I deal with those kind of situations that involve uh, an employee in usually a difficult situation. They might have been sat by their employer, they might have been discriminated against. And I will bring claims on their behalf in the employment tribunal and fight their corner. 
but what's the great thing about Russell Jones and Walker is that we, we only do people representation, we only represent individuals rather than companies. So it fits in with my belief of protecting the underdog against authority. And um, and, that, and that's what we do. I mean, some, it's not all contentious. Sometimes someone comes to you, they've got a contract that they need reviewing, and you, you look at it and you make suggestions and try and get the best deal for them. But it usually involves some kind of litigious uh, situation. <laughs> what attracted you to becoming a lawyer in the first in the first place? I love representing people. I just love that. I, I like helping people with their problems and to get a resolution for them. Being a lawyer is... A great way to do that and but you're also kind of fighting for something better and and I always wanted to do law that involved uh, that had a human element to it so employment law is I mean we all go to work on a daily basis um, we we're all affected by it and if it's a terrible situation then you know 75% of our lives can be absolutely miserable and so yeah, it, 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 it's good for me to come along and try and make it better for someone. And I, and I, that's what drives me. I like making people's lives better. Do you remember when you realised or decided to become a lawyer? or did it? Yeah, of... I think it was about 13 and I was watching Kavanaugh QC. <laughs> um, at that time I'd, I thought, oh, I'd like to be an advocate in a court and, um, and presenting a case on behalf of someone but actually what I found with that the more I researched it was that the thing with a barrister is you're only there at the end you're only with someone at the end and you don't have that kind of client relationship that a solicitor has so what I enjoy about my job is that I meet someone on day one and I'm with them through thick and thin right until the end representing them and actually in the employment tribunal solicitors can do advocacy anyway so I could do it if I wanted to. I never do because it's not usually cost effective. But there's a sense that you, you're you're in it with them, and that you know you're preparing their case throughout, and that's what I, I really like about it. And and you do a lot more day to day advice, whereas a barrister doesn't really get involved with that everyday contact. And I like that. And you you build up a um, a relationship with someone. You build up a, a sense of trust with someone. And they look to you in difficult circumstances. Not everybody that you represent is going to be someone that you would choose to represent. No, that's the interesting thing about what is a lawyer. That that's that's a question that a lot of people ask. Because the interesting thing about barristers is, you know, why we wear wigs and why barristers wear wigs and gowns. No, is because it creates anonymity. Ah. It's, it's about the whole issue of anonymity that a lawyer is nothing more than an advocate for your client you're not there to sort of project yourself into the client's situation and trying to, to fight for you you're there to fight for somebody else and you know the whole question of whether a lawyer a lawyer is also an officer of the court right It's that's one of our key roles as well so you're there to try and facilitate justice and to try and get to the truth in lots of ways. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so it's, you know, there are certain, and that's why there's strict codes of conduct on how a lawyer should behave. But, yeah, you do get clients who want you to go beyond that and try, I mean, some, I mean I've mean, i had clients who, you know, 
almost want you to blackmail the other side um, because they perhaps know something that's hurtful to to the employer but you're not allowed to blackmail and you, you have to make sure you continue to act within those sort of strict parameters and with integrity within with your integrity and, and because you are an officer of the court and um, you're, you're, you're an officer of justice as well but also I'm sure that that also means that there are sometimes when you represent someone who is in the right and you're fulfilling your ethical code but maybe it's hard to like them personally yeah yeah yes oh gosh yeah I mean things where I work is you get such a range of people because um, we do work for trade unions the, the police federation but we also do private client work and most of my job is private client and so you know you might get senior executives um, coming in and it's often perhaps perhaps a different dynamic with them compared to other people um, and you may not like someone but it's not your job to like them it's your job to represent them mm. and that's the thing it's back to that anonymity point that you're an advocate but as long as you're not breaking rules or breaking the law, then you know you act for them and try and get the best deal for them. You have your personal opinions, but you have to keep them separate. Then, I yeah. guess, because that's not what you're there for. That's not what you're. Yeah, I mean, classic example is at the moment I'm representing someone from a different political party to me, without naming names. No, absolutely. Um, and. Therefore, that can you know I w- wouldn't don't agree with everything that that person believes in. No, but it's not my job to make those kind of moral judgments. Absolutely, yeah. No. Um, and it can be very difficult because the problem is we're all human. You know, we all have opinions, we all have views yeah. on things. Um, and I'm you know, in, it, sometimes it makes it difficult because you end up preferring certain clients over others and you know you're not there to prefer people it's just about representing them i think i can i can relate to that to a certain extent my current job is working with children who are under fives yeah and uh with their parents as well you have favorites of course you have favorites because they're kids and some of them are really lovely and some of them are annoying and you know (laughs) but the way that you engage with the children has to to a certain extent be equal and it has, you have to treat them all with an equal kind of uh, yeah. respect. And I, I guess it's a kind of very different form of the same same yes. thing yes. to putting your professional job in front of your personal sort of feelings, yeah. I guess. exactly, because you're paid to do a job. Yeah. And and that's that's the bottom line. I mean, I guess it's to do with pay. You're paid to do the job. But also, I think I find it easier to do that in a job that I believe in the function of. Yeah, and I think you you sound like you you believe in the function of law, of lawyers. You believe yeah. in them as a kind of ideological construct. Well, they they are. I'm be careful of, okay. of of saying that they're ideological, but the, they. Why I believe in it in so much is that everyone here, we all deserve justice, mm. and it's important that we find ways of ensuring justice. Is, it happens. I guess that's what I was really saying. Yeah, justice I'm, I'm, is as a concept. Yeah, it's exactly. a higher yes, concept, yeah. not party political. No, it's not. But. No, exactly. Um, you know, I'm a liberal democrat, but the only way it sort of affects my job is it's it, it, it the beliefs of the liberals sort of uh, fueled my desire to represent an individual. Yeah, as opposed to sort of um, an institution. Right. 
um, because liberalism is about the liberty of individuals. Your aspiration goes towards becoming a politician and a politician is also a an agent of the state. A uh, constituency MP, they mm. have a personal relationship with their constituents, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they do. And they're there to represent like a lawyer and they're there to help our democracy function properly. I mean, that's that's the role of a politician. It's there to represent the views of its constituents in formulating policy, in formulating law. I mean, obviously it's different from a lawyer who interprets the law and advises accordingly, according to what the law is. Um, because a politician makes the law? Yeah, yeah, mm. exactly. They're, they're in Parliament. Parliament is sovereign. Whatever comes out of that is what the lawyers have to work with. <laughs> Quite often bad, but... You know. <laughs> Working for the council as I do, I have to enforce policy that I may or may not agree with because in my employment contract I, I'm not allowed to, to criticise the council so obviously I, I wouldn't say whether yeah. I would agree with it or not but one might disagree with some of the policies that you have to enforce but you still have to enforce them because that's your that's your role and that's your job yeah. and I guess that's the and same that, with a lawyer. Well yeah and it can be really difficult sometimes because uh, a client doesn't necessarily understand the law or know what it is before he or she comes to see you and then when they hear what the law is they don't like it i mean that's always the difficulty i mean it's so sorry on the chair anyone's wondering what that is yeah just it's, it's, it, we're in my in my in my room um quite late at night that's why there was and there was some quite a lot, it's, it's interesting there was some police sirens i think that picked up quite a lot when we were talking about the law which was quite weird relatively late at night we're having a glass of wine, wine this well. is the best first of these uh of these podcasts where i've i've actually been drinking wine well i think it's good i've completely lost my train of thought now oh yeah the uh, clients who don't like it the classic one is when someone comes in complaining of bullying and they want to know what they can do against their employer when it's a bullying situation and it's so hard to communicate to a client that there's no actual anti-bullying law there isn't one you know it's very difficult unless there's discrimination attached it's very difficult to really make any kind of claim when there's a bullying situation unless you say I mean it's going to be technical but unless you resign and say that you've been constructively dismissed so that's the that's one of the biggest areas I find that disappoints clients that there's not always much they can do about it from a legal point of view and I mean they can do stuff internally but from a sort of legal and do you think as a standpoint as a potential lawmaker would that be something that you think would help do you think it'd be uh, good to have a, a, an anti-bullying law. law um in theory yes i think you know i would agree that it's some employers bully their employees and it's absolutely shocking what happens but the problem is what do you class as bullying yeah i think it's hard i think it's really difficult and it i don't think it's one of those things that i would really like to see in lots of ways but I don't think it's practical to actually implement, in which case you end up with a usually a bad, messy law. Yeah, I can and, see that. And you honest. don't, and you make the situation worse. And I don't think, I'm, I mean, I'm not aware of any jurisdiction that has anti-bullying laws. I mean, you cert as, you know, thinking sort of the political stuff that I do, I would certainly campaign hard to there to be anti-bullying policies in schools and, you know, even... And, in the workplace as well, you know, to make sure that an employer does doesn't allow it to happen, but yeah. um, and to educate people about bullying. Um, but I think making laws 
in the workplace is probably not realistic. Sometimes law is not the not the only way that you can influence society, and maybe sometimes no, exactly, exactly. I mean, in that respect, I kind of come down with liberal with a small l, yeah, kind of attitudes to these things. Sometimes it's about just you know being open and talking and trying yeah. to work things out and educating from grassroots up. Yeah, it's when you find you, policies are normally effective. <laughs> you didn't start your life as a lawyer and you didn't start your life as a liberal democrat either really you found those things along the way Mm. what do you think is different about yourself if you look back at yourself when you were a teenager getting kind of the the person behind the the policy do you think that you believed in the same things that you believe in now um i think did but I wasn't so aware of it then I think it was I think back as a teenager I mean, it was very much more conservative in outlook I think and I think that's because um, like Jenny pretty much grew up in suburban York yeah you know it's very leafy very nice <laughs> very enjoyable in lots of ways um, but you're not exposed to um a lot of the issues in the world um, and or its problems and so you know I had a more of a conservative suburban outlook if you like and was, um, it, was your family uh, they were you were to, it was a Tory voting household yeah Would yeah you, well was, I suppose fair, it, yeah it was then um, well I think my mother's never been entirely Tory because she can't bear toffs but <laughs> Right. So she was always a bit of a much more on the sort of she would normally vote liberal because she didn't like Labour. Right. And where you know where suburban New York, there's no much not much point voting for the Labour Party because they it never doesn't win. Get in, it doesn't yeah. get anywhere there. So you know you end up voting a lot of people just vote Liberal Democrat because Labour don't win. So she was a bit like that. Um, my dad, I would say, my dad was a typical, in many respects, working class. Tory, you know, um, grew up in the Labour years of the 70s when all it seemed to be was um, strikes and shortages and IMF loans, (laughs) all that kind of stuff that he couldn't bear Labour as a result of that and so went to the Conservatives during the Thatcher era, but has changed himself as he's gone along. So I think he, he confessed to me that last year was the first time he had voted for the Liberal Democrats because he just didn't believe the Tories were a viable party anymore. He didn't think they had any ideas, and he looked. He thought the Liberal Democrats had ideas of actually how to make the country better. And his son was a, now a Liberal. Yes, Democrat. and his son was. But I, I do think there was a genuine sort I'm, of. I'm sure. I mean, I'm just there. saying. And I'm just saying what I yeah, feel. Some so people a, might yeah, say just as a, so yeah, it's there within the yeah, conversation. Yeah, in a way, it, it was a Conservative household was small C. Yeah. And but now I think, you know, my parents are sort of because they've experienced things in their lives as time's gone on that they've they've slightly changed their, their outlook as well. When you were were growing up in school, you wanted to be a lawyer then, did you? Yeah, yeah. I did. I did um or a teacher. That was um uh, a popular thought as well. Um but I went with law because of this sort of passion for the idea of representing someone, I, 
I just thought it was something I would be good at. I like to sort of I sympathise with people and uh, I like to try and put myself in their shoes and see how I can make things better. Um, when you were growing up in school, you considered yourself to be heterosexual, yeah? Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 I was... I, was uh, well, I wouldn't say mixed up. I, I was probably... Because you know I'm gay. Yeah. I was... <laughs> Otherwise, the question the would be a strange, a very strange question. If you were the, the audience was in any way in doubt, there, I would say back then I felt something was different about me, but I just didn't acknowledge it. I just didn't want to deal with it. Right. So I kind of shelved it. My focus, I would say, at school, and Jenny could probably verify this, was that I was, I was focused on my academic studies. I was determined to get to where I wanted to be. I wanted to get to university. Um, because, you know, I've always taken the view that for ordinary families, education's your only way. You know, that's it. That's that's all you've got, really. You don't have connections and you don't have an awful lot of money. Yeah. But you do have an education. And so I was just completely focused on that. And I really regret that now in many respects because I didn't address some of the, the personal issues in my life when I should have done. And I just left it, and that's not good because you know an individual bottles it all up. And not that I was ever sort of necessarily depressed about it, but I think, um, although times probably I was, but it wasn't a massive feature in my life. You didn't realise that you were gay, or did you sort of suspect? I suspected there was. Well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because the problem with sexuality is it's not, you know, it's not necessarily an either-or. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, and I, I had my own sort of... I, I mean, when I was... A t- I think when when everyone's a teenager, they, they try out the other the yeah. other side. So I considered whether I was gay and realised that I was straight. Yeah. And I, I guess you were probably considering being a, a heterosexual. Yeah, and I had heterosexual, if you like to call it that, <laughs> experiences, yeah. you know. And but it didn't feel completely right. There was something that I just didn't feel was quite right about. No, it. it's strange, isn't it? When you do so, I've I've had homosexual experiences to a certain extent, yeah. mild ones. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right, Dave. But it's a strange, it's a strange thing, realizing that you, this isn't who you you know. Try trying something out and knowing for definite this is not what you what you are you know I yeah but I was did you have teenage. that kind of feel well feel? I, I knew in a way because I thought that was just normal yeah oh, okay perhaps I'm supposed to feel like this that it's it's just me you know it's nothing to do with sexuality it's just a case of okay perhaps I'm just not geared up for these kind of emotional experiences this isn't me or something like that um, but uh, yeah I, I knew that it was something not quite right but I just, I think, I just wasn't willing to acknowledge what it meant or what the problem was at that time. And I probably didn't really until quite a long time after, probably um, the latter part of university and into law school. Right. Then I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's, there's, not that I'm different, it's just there's something about me that's not you know 
this. Well, I don't want to use the word normal, but you know what I mean. Straight. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah let's, let's, let's do that. I, I wasn't quite straight. So when did you realise that you were gay? I mean, you don't, you know, obviously well, I'm asking it's, it's, for it's details. Often, I'm asking no, for... I think it comes... It's like a, it's such a gradual process because a, a lot of people start off thinking it's just a phase, mm. and then you know you're just a bit hormonal as a teenager, and then it moves to oh, okay when when you when you start learning about it and learning about terms and bearing in mind we kind of grew up in the pre-internet age yeah that's true um, so sort of just coming in just in the it, middle of our secondary school yeah I mean it? I didn't sort of use the internet until. Mm. Like well, a bit at university. Yeah, that's about when I started. Too. Yeah, but not much. And so, you know, when you grow in suburb, up in suburban, you're you're not necessarily exposed to it. Although I did have gay friends at school. Yeah, but I think it was because I'd sort of pushed it so deep down. I wasn't necessarily emotionally developed enough at that stage to to put a put a label on it. What I was, if you see what I mean. Mm. It was just a lot of complicated emotions. You know, sometimes I felt straight, sometimes I felt gay, and then so then I I concluded, oh, I must be bisexual. <laughs> so that was that was that part, and then once I dared have gay experiences because I wasn't willing to do that initially. I just was you know shying away from it. I, I felt ashamed. I didn't want to do it. Um, but then once I went travelling in South America, I had my first experience and then I thought okay this feels a bit more natural it felt right yeah and then moving to London as well when you're in a, a big city with um, where being gay seemed a lot more acceptable then you start to explore it more and then you sort of realize you are it's very hard to be gay in a non-cosmopolitan area when you sort of move to a big city suddenly <laughs> because it's quite a small minority yeah you are a very much a minority in a small area whereas in a big city all minorities are bigger aren't they i mean we yes, can you yes. know they can all find each well, other well it's easier. obvious isn't it because yeah. you know like somewhere like york where there may not be necessarily many gay places um might be one or two so then everybody knows a lot each other and you know there's there's not so much anonymity or some not so much privacy that kind of thing makes it difficult yeah but i think what i suspect is when you're older it's not necessarily and you're settled down in a relationship not necessarily so difficult I no think i when think you, not yeah. I, I, yeah i think you know if i move back to yorkshire say with a partner I wouldn't necessarily feel um, inhibited or feel it was a problem. No, it's easy to find other gay people in a cosmopolitan yeah. area, but it might not necessarily be the place you want to live. Yeah, still. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think in, in long-term relationships, it's, it's fine everywhere. I think mm. it's just in those early stages when you're perhaps um, learning about your sexuality or experimenting, I think it's far more difficult to be in a small area. The, the thing that provoked this line of conversation um, from my point of view was I remember you coming out to Jen mm. a f quite a few years ago now because I guess I've been in London for a while yeah five years or something she was one of your closest friends at school yes and yet you were very very worried about telling her this this thing about yourself 
and I think you were worried because it been because because it was so late on. Yeah, and, and sometimes, actually, the people you're closest to, well, it's harder to tell the people you're you're the most closest to sometimes yeah. because they and they also know you. They've also known you for a long time, and so they they knew you when perhaps perceptions were different, and then you start to worry that perhaps then they're going to think you're a completely different person now and that your friendship might be threatened. Yeah, no. It, that's 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 what I was feeling at the time. I feel, I mean, I, I remember feeling very, very strongly for you, really, and feeling very sort of sad that you had all of this kind of, these fears and actually about something that's, that's something so small in a way, but it yeah. feels so big. Oh, it did at the time. Yeah, of yeah, course, oh, and I can nice. understand that. And that's the thing, actually, my oldest friends were probably the last to find out, actually, interestingly. But that doesn't mean I'm any less close to my oldest friends. It was more about a perception thing, because they had known me for so long when, you know, they thought that perhaps I was something different. Yeah. And then, you know, I didn't want to send them into a state of, oh my goodness, do I know this person anymore? Because I was still the same. And I think it was probably a very big surprise for them. Because it was so like I, I have to confess, I did I did suspect that you were gay before you came out. Yeah. But but Jen would never 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 agreed with me. <laughs> did she? <laughs> <laughs> um What would she say then? She'd just say no, I don't think so. But I think also at school you had to fight against not fight against, but you had to deal with homophobic bullying for your friend yeah, yeah. and for yourself. Yeah. And so I guess well, that might have been what was... That would throw the scent off, you know? Yeah, and it might have been what was... Um, why I suppressed it, perhaps, because I saw what happened to him. Yeah, because school is a hard place. Oh, it can be hard I had place. a very hard uh, school life. I can understand why gay people would stay in the closet at school. Mm. Um, whilst I don't necessarily think it's healthy and I don't advocate staying in the closet necessarily at school, I th- think, God, it's such a hard place to be yeah. open about it, it things because people will just jump on anything, yes. let alone uh, something that is so kind of still complicated in mm. cultural terms. Although I think we're... I like to think that homosexuality is one of the areas where there have been some quite substantial successes in this society. Oh, yeah, and it's one of the big things I would praise the last Labour government for, is some of the equality legislation that they brought in to try and um, counteract homophobia in, in, public, in the public sphere. And uh, I'd, I'd actually do believe that people like Tony Blair did genuinely believe in gay rights well they had a they had a gay culture secretary didn't they yeah Chris i mean Smith, first well first openly gay yeah yeah that's that's, that's right gay people have been, been yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and probably quite a few prime ministers as well so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that one of those things you can just go back through history and go oh yeah yeah i agreed with them they were gay if you're gay dars were okay <laughs> And what do you think about, actually, that's a, an interesting question to you as a politician and a, as a lawyer. There's a there's a point of view that says um, that heterosexuals should have the right to civil partnerships. Yeah. There's a political group that says, you know, heterosexuals should be allowed to not marry, but have a civil partnership. And and within that is the implication that gay people should be able to get married. But, yeah. I mean, what, what do you think about that? Do you think that... Do you think that we... 
civil partnership is in itself a valuable and valid thing or do you think we should just get rid of that and have marriage well the thing is on a practical level there's not a huge amount of difference between a civil partnership and marriage really yeah and I don't understand why for gay people it's called something different I just think it's silly I think my own view is it it should be equal it's everything's just marriage for for, for heterosexual people or for gay people and then of course it's up to religious institutions whether they're prepared to um, have gay weddings or anything like that mm. and one of the new things that looks uh, looks like it's going to come in is um, the ability for religious um, buildings to be uh, hosts of, of civil partnerships for, for gay people um, and that looks like that's going to come in shortly. Well, that would be great. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I think there's an argument that if a heterosexual couple want a civil partnership rather than complete marriage, yeah, I'm not against that. I mean, what what I'm what I'm pro is that people want to stay together and that they want to be in a loving relationship. To me, that's what's critical. I think it's critical for our own health. I think it's critical for family life. I think it's really important for the for society generally that you know we 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 love and cherish our partners whether they're male or they're female and whether you're male or female yeah that's what i want to see so you're you're in favor of obviously you're in favor of monogamous kind of commitment yeah exactly yeah and i mean at the end of the day Whatever labels you attach to it, if if, there's, if you're in a loving relationship, you're in a loving relationship. Yeah. And that's what's important. But I do think it's important for the the state to sort of make a declaration about the kind of society we should be. And so, allowing gay people to marry shows that we really do believe in an equal society for all our citizens, and not create different tiers or different groups or labels for yeah. different people. I'll always acknowledge that it's a difficult area for the church and for um, religions and I think we should be sensitive to that and respect what, um, what they believe um, as long as they not as they don't actively discriminate. I can see the argument for that. I had a conversation with my friend who is a Christian sort of around this area as well, yeah. and it's quite interesting as a comparison. Well, you actually the thing is, actually, in employment law, you often get this problem, balancing the rights of gay people with um, those who, want, who are religious. So it's sort of... Because the, there's anti-discrimination um, on the grounds of religious belief uh, legislation as well as sexual orientation and you know the courts often have to deal with this balancing act between two different sets of rights if you like um but the general view is that you know we have to respect everyone in society and that you you shouldn't actively discriminate against another group um so the classic example is the the registrar who won't do civil partnerships because they're a christian well, they're part of an an, org an organisation and employed to do a particular job that allows civil partnerships. Yeah. And so, therefore, um, 
local authorities would be going against their own equal opportunities policies well, that's if my, they didn't allow it. That's always been my, my view on, yeah. on that example, is that if you take a job as a registrar, then you have to do the job of being yeah. a registrar. And if you don't want to marry everybody as a registrar, then don't be a registrar. That's exactly. fine. Go and find a yeah, different exactly. job. No one's, the, the laws don't prevent you from having your beliefs, but what the law prevents you is actively discriminate, discriminating against others in society, in the public sphere. Slightly changing gear again. <laughs> when did you realise that you were a Liberal Democrat? Liberal Democrat? <laughs> oh, oh. Well, I sp- the thing is, I reckon most people are small-L Liberals in lots of ways. Um, I think most Maybe in this society. Yeah, yeah, in, in, in Britain. Mm. Most of us believe in having freedom of choice, the freedom to do what you want with your life obviously within the law and, <laughs> and obviously you've got responsibilities mm. um, they believe in a democratic government and I think lots of people are quite internationalist in, in their their viewpoints um, but that doesn't necessarily um, mean that everyone wants to be a liberal democrat no <laughs> uh, you know a lot of liberals are conservatives yeah um because they perceive the Conservative Party to be for them and for, for whatever reason. A lot of Liberals are, are members of the Labour Party. Um, there's Liberal traditions in all three of the major parties. I'd say you could even, there's even an argument that there's a lot of uh, Liberal Green Party people. Yeah, yeah. Say. Green Party obviously aren't the big one yet. Might be in the no, future. No, true enough. But um, thinking sort of the mainstream political... Yeah. Uh, situation, but for me, the big the, the, the when I re- when I decided to change because I was a conserv I was a member of the Conservative Party prior to that was Iraq. Um, that was the big one for me, um, and actually the Liberal Democrats took a principled stand on Iraq from the start when it was popular to be in favour of the war. Uh, in Indian opinion polls at the start of the conflict, a majority of the people uh, supported it. But of course, as things went wrong, um, fewer people did. But the Liberals always took a certain stance against it, and that, and that was what I believed, and that was the catalyst. I think that is a very fair statement. That that whatever you think of, whatever you think of the Liberal Democrats categorically they did take a principled stance on Iraq when it wasn't a popular policy. Yes, yeah. Although it was more... I mean, by taking that stance, they did get everybody that disagreed with the war on their side. I mean, there is that argument. But Yeah. But you're right. I mean, at that time, it wasn't a popular choice and they went with it. But there was very, very big... As time went on, there were very big demonstrations. So it was Yeah, a, it, was it a, became... In a way, it was a a good decision for them yeah. as a party but it was also the right principled decision to take and when well, I've always been quite liberal in lots of ways you know I've always been very pro-European so I've, I've always believed in working together with other countries I've always been an internationalist um, I, I do believe in transparency of government and I believe that every individual should be free to achieve what they want in life, free from conformism and free from poverty, um, and in and empowered 
I mean, liberalism is about empowerment. That's what I really believe in, empowerment. And one of the things you were saying earlier on about and uh, everyday people, education being the only way to get up because you don't have connections. Yeah. In a way, that's a sort of... That's, that is a, a, a difference in ideology between the two coalition partners that, that, that whilst Nick Clegg may have had those connections he does advocate a, a world where you don't need connections yeah. together. I mean it's, it's, a very, it's, very, it's something very difficult to achieve. I mean I always think the thing is with like, the Labour Party is uh, they've always got good intentions but I always feel with them that they feel you know a government organised programme with lots of money thrown at it, will solve it. That's the kind of approach that they take. And in some ways, a government-sponsored programme is the right way to go um, in certain circumstances. But the core of my belief is you get better results when a local community is empowered, when the local councils are empowered and everybody feels part of their community, recognises the problems and works together to solve them. And it's it's that's where the difference is. It's about local empowerment. Liberalism is very much about that. Okay, what's the difference between that and the big society? The big society. Well, in some respects, there isn't a difference. The problem, the problem with the concept of big societies, I think, it's largely been misinterpreted, um, and it's a bit naff in terms of the way it's presented. Um, the way the press has interpreted it and a lot of the public is that Cameron was going on about basically volunteers doing everything and that suddenly that would replace public services mm. he wasn't actually when you when you when you listen to his speeches it was more than that it was about a shift of power away from the state um towards local communities mm. um and and in a way, he was taking up a very liberal idea, but um, putting on a kind of naff PR label. Right. But a lot of what he was saying is, is, is liberal. and But the danger of the way it's been presented is that it appears that it's sort of Edwardian philanthropy almost. Rather mm, than sort well, of, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah rather than I um, think if a you... coherent power... Sh- Shift. If you impl- if you implement the kind of uh, ideas that, that that I think Cameron talks about when he talks about the big society, then you would indeed have a big society in uh, nice middle class areas where people have yeah. got the time and the opportunity to volunteer at their local library and run those libraries for yeah. them because they have you know they their housewives or their house husbands or whatever and they and they and yeah. they have the time to do it. Yeah. Um, and they don't have the you know terrible poverty that I see in in a lot of the areas that I work in. Well, that's it. Living in Tower Hamlets and standing in Tower Hamlets last year, at the local council. I mean, yeah, there's huge amounts of poverty in Tower Hamlets that uh, I've never encountered before, and certainly you certainly don't see in <laughs> in the outskirts of York. You know, no. <laughs> and the, the big society's not going to save that. No, it's not. In lots of ways, you you still need pu- um, public services, but in those areas. But the difference is, though, that the provision of those public services 
doesn't necessarily have to be by sort of state organized institutions you can get the third sector involved you can get the state involved you can get the private sector involved um, in the provision of services I'm not against that what I believe in is getting the right outcome not necessarily that it has to be all public or all private I just think that's just a silly dichotomy it's it's about looking at who can provide that public service um, in the best way that um, gets the right outcome okay that's what that that's that's what I and that in. sounds great yeah for an to example, a lot of voters that would sound great I yeah. mean as as a an anarchist is against state but pro because I'm pragmatic within the current system I'm pro public services because what if you take away these things hmm. what are you gonna have what you're saying does make a lot of sense to me that's why I voted for your party yeah I don't see that happening in government at the moment everything you're saying about getting the right outcomes grand but are you getting the right outcome I guess well first thing I'd say to that is well a it's only a year in so you know save judgment perhaps give you time yeah give us time all right the other thing is we are in exceptional circumstances I don't want to go on about the deficit but it is massive and we've never had so much debt in peacetime as as we've got now and as a result that has to be tackled why because you know we're spending hundreds of millions just on interest payments every day yeah but we've had the deficit for a while yeah. And there's no reason why we have to, if we do have to cut, which I'm not entirely convinced that we do, but if mm -hmm. we do have to cut, mm -hmm. there's nothing that says we have to cut so quickly, no. there's nothing that says we have to cut so hard, and there's nothing to say that we can only reduce the deficit through cuts. There are other ways we can reduce the cuts, such as getting people to pay their to, to not avoid taxes mm -hmm. uh, raising taxes for the, the rich or or the bankers the Robin Hood tax yeah there are many other options that we can pursue apart from the current regimen of cuts do you believe in the cuts that are taking place I don't believe we should be dogmatic about the cuts they they should be driven by necessity not ideology yeah that's that's one thing we have to get we have to step back a bit in terms of the cuts because I think the problem is there's a lot of hyperbole that's issued that on both sides, on both I, sides I think about fair. it there is. if you look at what the cuts mean by the end of the Parliament government spending will still be roughly the same proportion of GDP and secondly after the cuts have done you're talking about taking public spending back to the levels of at around in 2005-6. Now that wasn't that long ago, mm. and I'm sure we can all remember 2005 and six. Yes. So there's what people say in, in the Labour Party is sort of saying is you know it's a Thatcherite destruction of the state, and you know we're we're taking public spending down to completely unreasonable levels well that, that's not going to happen that's not that's not what's happening so th that that I needs to know. be sort sort of thought about we'll a have bit. To, i think we'll have to but, see but the the other that happens. the on taxation well this government has introduced bank levy it was it's a, uh, that was wasn't that pioneered that was by the liberal democrats, democrats that was to liberal be fair democrat policy mm -hmm. 
Um, the 50%, I personally am not against the 50% tax rate. But I think it has to be looked at because there is an argument that actually doesn't really bring in that much. And it's very difficult because we live in a very modern globalised economy where labour moves very freely and very easily. And so you don't want a, a, a talent drain. Right. Know. And that's something that you have to sort of watch. I mean, it's it's easy just to, to bash the banks. You know, it's easy to do that. And they have to take their fair share of the responsibility for what's happened. And I think the bank levy, to a degree, does that. Mm -hmm. Um but we also have to remember that financial services is a big part of the economy. It's, you know, it's roughly 10%, I think. And it employs a lot of ordinary people. I mean, a lot of the bashing we talk about is um, in relation to, you know, the investment yeah. banks. And I, I certainly am one uh, who believes that we really need to look at the structure of banks. And, the you know, there's been a commission, obviously, to look at this. But... Um, I think there's a strong argument for splitting off the sort of the casino investment style banking mm -hmm. away from ordinary retail banking to protect people. But, you know, the issue we've got in our economy is far greater than the banks in the sense of, in my view, it's very imbalanced still. It's still too imbalanced. And we've really got to sort of look at manufacturing and really promoting growth mm. generally. Um, in different parts of the country into new sectors so that we're going to be able to compete with India and China and Brazil and everybody else going okay. forward. And I think the problem with the, the the bank bashing is that it's detracting from the core problem that our economy is t um, weighted too much in favour of financial services in the City of London and it's got to be far more balanced going forward. Well, that's that's fair... Uh, to a certain extent. I mean, I'm not going to have a large political <laughs> argument with you here. I mean, obviously, I don't agree with what you're saying, but I think yeah. you have a right to say it uh, without without <laughs> me kind of uh, censoring it. Yeah. What I would say is, just to sort of end up, end this sort of discussion about kind of current situation that the Liberal Democrats find themselves in, if we had a Liberal Democrat government yeah. that wasn't a coalition government, what would be different about the situation that we are in now? In terms of the cuts? In, yeah, in terms of the cuts, yeah. Well, uh, to be honest, I think all three of the parties were going to have to implement pretty uh, wide-ranging cuts. That's, I mean, certainly Labour were going to as well as the other two. Yeah, when they say they weren't going to, they were. Yeah, they're, they're lying through their teeth and they're mm. being very disingenuous. I wonder if it would have been quite as fast. Right. Um, if it had been a Liberal Democrat government. Um, because if you look at our manifesto, we were interested in putting together some kind of sort of economic council to kind of monitor the situation, which would have had people from the Bank of England, the political parties. So I think the Tories seem a bit more enthusiastic for it, um, which comes across as suggesting that they've taken the cuts as an opportunity to promote a certain kind of agenda whereas I think the Liberal Democrats would have looked at it far more what is necessary right? and I think it would have cutted things that we definitely don't need so for example Trident, yeah, Trident. You know, those kind of issues 
Would which we, might have given more spare cash for, for other priorities. And would a Liberal Democrat government have introduced proportional representation? Yes, yeah. So in terms of other policies, yeah, you would have got that, definitely. There would have been far, probably um, political reform at a, a faster pace than what we've got at the moment, I think. Um, but you've got to remember, 65% of our manifesto is being implemented in the coalition agreement. So a lot of it, we are actually implementing, and there's some really good stuff. Um, you know, the income tax allowances um, have gone up, linking pensions back to earnings, you know, as a Liberal Democrat policy. The pupil premium is a Liberal Democrat policy. Well, I hope that these policies are going to prove to be positive and good for the majority of people who will find themselves in a very tough time. Yeah, I mean, I feel for them. I feel no, for them because I mean, my own father has lost his job in this economic crisis. Yeah. And so, you know, I experience it on an everyday level in terms of listening to him how awful it all is and the fact that so many people's lives are in flux. They're, they don't know what the future holds. They're, they're worried. But it's, it's just perfectly a, understandable. As and a society, we have to take kind of take this medicine now or it will be worse later. Well, yeah, so, I mean, that that's that's what I worry about because, I mean, I don't know any Liberal Democrat who's there because they want to make cuts. I don't know a single one who wants to make cuts. It's being done out of necessity because, you know, we do live in a globalised economy with money markets and everything else. You've had the sovereign debt crisis in European nations and it looks like problems are developing in the US with a sort of slight downgrading of credit ratings and that has knock-on effects and you know if your market collapses and you know suddenly uh, interest rates rise significantly which is always the danger then so many people will suffer even more than what are suffering now. Someone might say to that though that if the markets collapse and it means that people are suffering terribly maybe it might be a time to look at the existence of markets and how they operate and how we could restructure society completely but I agree might be a bit tough that one though that won't get voted for (laughs) no one's standing on that in the three main parties but I I do what I would say is I do agree that we we've got this opportunity now to really look at our economy um, and and see what we want for the future, and they are and the coalition are trying to do that. So, for example, there's going to be new technology hubs similar to what they have in Germany to link universities with industry to get ahead on new industries and new technologies. Because we have to be that. In my view, the only way we're going to grow is by really developing in high tech industries. And because yeah, we're up against what happens when the you know the oil runs out and uh, we well, have to survive with a hell of a lot less resources and I mean is this, is this technology sustainable? Well right? you've, you've certainly got to look at um, energy supply and developing a much greener economy and that's where I think the future is alternatives to, to oil and coal fired power stations and all the rest and preferably not nuclear although I don't I don't think in the immediate term not having nuclear power stations is very feasible, my own view. And that's the thing, you know, the, the government are trying to do that with the Green New Deal, the Green Investment Bank, mm. green projects in high-tech industries, the regional growth funds. These are all liberal 
democrat policies as well so that areas of the country that are really suffering at the moment can get government funding to generate new economic projects um, infrastructure for example high-speed rail they're all positive things that the government are trying to do to promote growth to make things better but it does take time and I think we live in an era where everyone expects things to be done within sort of six months to a year um, and I'd like to see an, an economy that that looks at human well-being and environmental well-being a lot more than it currently does. Well I really hope that, that the kinds of visions that you have for, for this coalition's progress come true. I, I have to say I'm personally quite sceptical <laughs> but what I do think is clear and I, I think it's clear, it's clear to me is that you're in politics for the right reasons and that you believe in what you're saying and in your party and I hope two things really that the one that more people enter politics with the kind of attitude that you have and two that as you progress through politics you keep that uh, <laughs> yeah so do I and yeah. I'm sure I will well I think I, I think you will I think you've got strength of character and you know, there were lots of other areas that I uh, that I can't get into because we're running at low on time. I oh know it's been a joy day. It's been really good, um, and I think you know it's going to be interesting in comparison to some of the other conversations that I've been having as well. At this point, I give the guests an opportunity to plug whatever they might want to plug. So, what would you like to plug, Rich? What I like to plug. Oh, but it might, it might be dated, though. Go on, whatever. So, right, vote yes for AV, because it's the first step along the road to political change. OK. And if you didn't vote <laughs> yes for AV, then, you know, that was... You, did, you didn't do what Richard would like. No, that's true. But I think, I think in a way, the, a, lo- a big chunk of this uh, episode has been a, a plug for the Liberal Democrats. Yeah. I, I guess. <laughs> um... So if, if, if your final plug turns out to be dated, which I, yeah, no, it will be. Uh, there we go. At least, at least you've uh, promoted. If you see, ever see my name on a ballot paper, please put a crossbow. Vote <laughs> <laughs> rich. Or if we've got AV, put number one. <laughs> <laughs> Who should they put as number two? Oh. Oh, God. That's a tricky one, actually. Who would I put as my number two? Oh, I'm not going to say. Yeah. That could compromise me too much. I think me. that's probably right. <laughs> uh, and on that note, it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you, Rich. Uh, Cheers, Dave. Do you want to say goodbye to the listeners? Goodbye, listeners. Have a good evening. Goodbye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.